Welcome to Free the Greeks, a history podcast on ancient Greece and the Peloponnesian War. And now your host, Joshua Taylor. Welcome. I am your host, Joshua Taylor, and this is Free the Greeks. Previously on Free the Greeks, we began our pre-Peloponnesian War examination of our two protagonists, Athens and Sparta. In that episode, we discussed the history and culture of Athens up to the foundation of its democracy in 507 BC. In this episode, we will be exploring the complex background of her rival, Sparta, one of the most fascinating of the Hellenic city-states. Before we oil ourselves up and comb our long hair, before we don our panoply and our Corinthian helmet, strap on our shield and grab our spear and throw on the scarlet cloak of the Lacedaemonian citizen, that is what the Spartans called themselves back then, I just want to say, F. Callisto, that is Greek for thank you, as in thank you for supporting this podcast. Whether you are a friend, family, stranger, or a lover of history, looking for a podcast to throw on, thank you for downloading this episode. I know it has been a few weeks since the last episode was uploaded, so if you were waiting patiently for this one, here it finally is. To draw on what we learned in the previous episode, you could say that the first two episodes of this series, I had all the resources and technologies at my disposal to ensure some frequency in the release of these episodes. But I soon found myself adrift, much like the survivors of the Greek Dark Age, and had to withstand all the invasions, all the chaos, and keep the light of civilization going. Somehow. So without the luxury of a Mycenaean palace system and a Mycenaean king, the Hellenic culture that is my podcast and this increasingly absurd metaphor had to make it on its own. And with some notion of Arete, of which we will discuss in this episode, I learned to grow my crops, build my boat, rig my sails, and travel to distant lands for more resources and technology to improve what I already had. Essentially, I learned to edit. And while it was a challenge, I am now a growing ambitious polis and all the better for it. End metaphor. So thank you again for all those who encouraged me, and I do hope that everyone is practicing social distancing. The Peleus of the Hellenes did not have to worry about that because the geography of where they were ensured they would be isolated from their rivals. But we have to be more vigilant in these unprecedented times, so stay healthy and stay safe out there. Another thing of import we discovered in the previous episode was the role of Sparta in the creation of Athenian democracy. King Cleomenes was nudged by the Oracle of Delphi, who had been nudged by the Alchemedid family of Athens, to save the city from the tyranny of Hippias. The Alchemenids, or Alchemenidae, you may recall, is the noble Athenian family that, despite its involvement in the establishment of democracy via Cleisthenes, were initially cursed by the entirety of the Athenian populace more than a century before for the execution of traitors who had claimed sanctuary to the goddess Athena. Ever since then, there was a curse called the Chilonian pollution over their heads. Sparta, on the other hand, were forever pious to the gods, and they obeyed this request from Apollo's priestess and came to Athens' rescue. Hippias was overthrown, but before you could say democracy, the oligarchy of that polis saw what was coming and requested the removal of 700 pro-democratic families, the Alcaminidae being the first on the list. The head of the oligarchic faction, oligarchy being the de facto governing style of most of the Hellenic world at this time, Isagoras used the Chilonian pollution to compel the Spartans through their religiosity to achieve this. The Spartans returned and soon his army and its king found themselves at the mercy of an angry Athenian mob. Confident on their success, 
Cleomenes had brought a small force and was soon overwhelmed by the Athenian Demos. He and his men were given safe passage, and although Asagoras escaped, his followers did not. They were executed by the provisional government before the 700 families, including Cleisthenes and the Alcaminidae, returned to the city. The restoration of the democratic faction quelled the violence, and the people gave them carte blanche to do what they needed to do to make the necessary changes to their current political system. In the end, the people of Athens would have an entirely representative government in which they elected their public officials. Of course, slaves, foreigners, or thetes, and women need not apply. Meanwhile, back in Sparta, King Cleomenes dealt with this great sucking wound to his pride, and Asagoras, cognizant of the murder of his colleagues, pressed him to rally the Peloponnesian League, which had recently been formed to protect Sparta and its allies from the encroaching threat of Persia, and invade Attica, so they may bring Athens to heel. That, I believe, takes us up to where we need to be, chronologically, for the next episode. The waning rule of Cleomenes, with his issues at home and abroad, will be discussed, and we will explore the Ionian Rebellion and the subsequent Persian Wars, as both those events lay the foundations for the rise of what the Peloponnesian League saw as the Athenian Empire, which was about to enter its golden age, not to mention its twilight, culminating in the Peloponnesian War. So, let's talk about Sparta. But before we dive deep into the minutiae of its culture, what better way to introduce you to Sparta than from some quotations from the most formidable members of its society? It's women. Now, in the interest of clarity, I have provided alterations to these quotations, but the majority of the words and language has been preserved, as well as the import of those quotes. Gorgo then nine years old, was the daughter of King Cleomenes. Winnestagoras of Miletus was urging her father to enter upon the war against the Persian king on behalf of the Ionians, promising a vast sum of money and an answer to Cleomenes' objections, making the amount larger and larger. Gorgo said, Father, the miserable foreigner will be your ruin if you don't get him out of the house pretty soon. Being asked by a woman from Attica years later, why is it that you Spartan women are the only women that lord it over your men? Gorgo said, because we are the only women that are mothers of real men. And much later, as she was encouraging her husband, Leonidas, when he was about to set out for Thermopylae to show himself worthy of Sparta, she asked, what should she do? And he said, marry a good man and bear good children. Another Spartan woman made away with her son, that is, killed him who had deserted his post on the ground that he was unworthy of his country, saying, Not mine, the scion. Not mine, the son. This is the epigram referring to her. Off to your fate through the darkness, vile scion, who makes such a hatred. So the Eurotas flow, not even for the timorous deer. Worthless wealth that you are, vile remnant, be off now to Hades. Off, for never I bore Sparta's unworthy son. Another, hearing that her son had fallen on the field of battle, said, let the poor cowards be mourned, but with never a tear do I bury you, my son, who are mine, yea, and are Sparta's as well. Another, when her sons had run away from battle and come to her, said, Where have you come now in your cowardly flight? Do you intend to slink in here whence you came forth? And with these words, she pulled up her garment and showed them. One woman, observing her son coming towards her, inquired, How fair is our country? And when he said, All have perished, she took up a tile and hurling it at him, killed him, saying, and so they sent you to bear the bad news to us. One woman sent forth her sons, five in number, to war, 
and standing in the outskirts of the city, she awaited anxiously the outcome of the battle. And when someone arrived and in answer to her inquiry reported that all her sons had met death, she said, I did not inquire about that, but how fair is our country? And when he declared that it was victorious, then, she said, I accept gladly also the death of my sons. When a woman from Ionia showed vast pride in a bit of her own weaving, which was very valuable, a Spartan woman pointed to her four sons who were most well behaved and said, Such should be the employments of the good and honorable woman, and it is over these that she should be elated and boastful. Another, as she accompanied the lame son on his way to the field of battle, said, At every step, my child, remember your valor. Another, as she handed her son his shield, exhorted him, saying, Either this or upon this. Another, in answer to her son, who said that the sword which he carried was short, said, Add a step to it, and it will be long enough. Another, hearing that her son had been killed in battle on the spot where he had been placed, said, Lay him away, and let his brother take his place. Argilionis, when her son had met his death, and some of the citizens of Amphipolis arrived at Sparta and came to her, asked if her son had met his death honorably and in a manner worthy of Sparta. And when they proceeded to tell of his greatness and declare that he was the best of all the Spartans in such enterprises, she said, Sirs, my son was a good and honorable man, but Sparta has many a man better than him. Now, Cleomenes I is an example of a Spartan king. As he marched towards Attica, seeking to solve his wounded pride in humbling Athens and its upstart new government, it may not be known to you that back in the central region of the Peloponnese, called Laconia, was a king sitting on a second throne. The Spartans, like that of the Corinthians, were Dorian Greeks. They spoke nearly the same tongue as their Athenian and other Hellenic rivals, and worshipped, save for their own local myths and heroes, the same gods. The Dorians believed themselves descended from their demigod and hero Heracles, or Hercules if you prefer. So too did the Dorian Spartans, who believed their two kings descended from two of Heracles' own sons. As a result, the dual throne of Sparta has two lineages, the Aegeids, the elder line, and the Eurypontids, the younger line. Cleomenes I and his successor Leonidas, for example, were of the Aegead line. Cleomenes' co-king at this time was Leotychidas. As the current Eurypontid, Leotychidas had taken the throne after his cousin Demaratus abandoned it for that of the Persian court. Why Demaratus did this, I will elucidate further when we reach the Persian Wars in the next episode. Central to the Hellenes was this idea of agonia, the struggle or contest to outdo the other. This is all due to Homer and the oral tradition he used to put his stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey to pen. If we go all the way back to the days of the Homeric Age, which historians and archaeologists agree occurred in the pre-Dark Ages around the 13th or 12th century BC, that is, the real-life figures of the Mycenaean kingdoms and the Trojan War, the Greeks were always in competition with each other. They shared the same pantheon of gods. They all spoke Greek, albeit in the dialects of Ionian, Dorian, or Aeolian. Plato called the Greek world as they knew it the Frog Pond. If you picture the Aegean Sea with the Cyclades, the archipelago of islands in the center and the Balkan Peninsula, the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian sub-peninsula at its western edge, then the eastern end of the pond, you have the Asian coast, where stretching leagues in land is the territory controlled by Ionian, Aeolian, and Dorian Greek colonists, stretching all the way to the Black Sea by the 6th century BC. And as far south as modern-day Turkey, with such city-states as Mayatalene on the island of Lesbos, Samos, Ephesus, Miletus, and Halicarnassus. And now, by the time of this chronology I've established so far, these are all under Persian rule. This also includes the colonized territory west of the Greek mainland, 
modern-day Italy, Sicily, France, and Spain. Connected by politics and commerce and supported by an expansive trade network of shared resources, religion, culture, and language, the Frog Pond was a Greek pond. The Greeks believed in erite, a virtue that essentially means excellence. Over time, the definition of erite has changed to fit its contemporary confines. Erite could refer to courage, whether of a physical courage or a mental courage. It is the source of the one great consistency of Hellenic cultures. Even between the two distinct societies is Athens and Sparta. Competition, rivalry, that agonia again. The Homeric myths passed down by oral tradition and transcribed supposedly by Homer influenced the cultural mindset of the Hellenes. This notion of achieving erite of excellence despite fostering competition gave birth to what is called Panhellenism, where the religious games like those founded at Olympia, Delphi, and so forth would be held at certain times to compete in a non-martial environment against the athletic champions of each city-state. Though it wasn't until the 6th century, Arete also influenced the development of the sciences such as mathematics, physics, astronomy, and biology. These men like Thales of Miletus or Protagoras of Abdera on the Thracian coast on the northern shore of the Aegean strived for excellence in logic. So the Greeks have Homer and the culture he espoused in his stories to thank for the primary driving force behind the development of the polis. And yet it would be the polis where this presumably selfish belief to achieve excellence would be projected. To serve one's polis was to live merely as a citizen of the polis. Morally and intellectually, a citizen of a polis felt it put them above other men. And while we talk about Athens founding its first democracy, it was not the first polis to establish what is called eunomia, or good order, an ideal place where law and justice was preserved, for the other polis strived for this. But the first to experience true success in this matter was Sparta. And if you consider the quotations from sayings of Spartan women, you can feel the pride and patriotism in the words of these women. In addition to having claim in a truly citizen state where its citizens participated in every factor of day-to-day -day life, the Spartans had their own idea of erite, aristeia, that is striving for excellence on the battlefield. What distinguished Sparta from the other Poleus was not only its dynamic women or the extraordinary proficiency and discipline of its army, it was that it was a state dedicated to war. If I were to apply a symbol to Athens and Athenian democracy, I would instantly choose the trireme. For Sparta, it was a polis built around the hoplite. Plato once said, war, always existing by nature between every Greek city-state. And while war is a fact of life in the Hellenic world, it was a necessity, not an ideal. The polis stood above other cities throughout the ancient world because the polis was a virtuous place. It protected the citizen from the outside forces of chaos and destruction by blanketing them with laws, justice, and goodness. Aristotle, for example, says that if you are not a citizen of a polis, then you are a barbarian, little more than an animal. So you have that eunomia again, that good order required for the consistency of civilization. The Greek poleus may train a fierce phalanx of citizen hoplites and skirmish against an aggressor every now and then in the pursuit of more land and def defending the colony or resisting the ambitions of a tyrant, but not all citizens of the city-states would hold war as the crux of their existence. For Sparta, however, war was life. They believed there was no greater gift one could give to Sparta than to die a beautiful death on the battlefield. War was their ethos, yet conquest was not the sum of their ambitions. For Sparta established a society where every male citizen under the age of 60 participated in the military for the purpose to defend and preserve Sparta. 
but to do so was not just merely for the perpetuity of law and order. Sparta had to maintain vigilance and be prepared for war at all times. But as we will learn, its insistence upon this way of life was crucial to its survival. The early history of Sparta is murky mainly because they did not leave a lot for us to read or even structures to view, unlike, say, Athens or every other Hellenic community of the ancient world. Suffice it to say, there was a Mycenaean kingdom of Sparta, or Lacedaemon. The main source of Sparta consists of Homer. Re, the kingdom of Sparta, ruled by Menelaus in the Mycenaean age, is evident in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Then we have the Spartan hoplite poet Tertius in the 6th century BC, as well as Elkman, another poet of that time. We then have Herodotus writing about Sparta's role before and during the Persian Wars, and of course Thucydides in his history of the Peloponnesian War, or as what the Spartans call the Athenian War. Later historians and writers are Xenophon, an Athenian who lived with the Spartans, who gave us some description on the makeup of the Spartan constitution. Aside from Xenophon, we may also include the essays from Plato and Aristotle. Though Aristotle was not a fan of the gynocratia, the woman power that existed in Sparta, and blames the decline of their way of life on this factor. It is frustrating to learn that our great philosophers were not as open-minded as we would like them to be, but this was a company line towed by ancient Greek culture. For the women of Athens and the other Poleus of the Greek diaspora were not even considered second-class citizens. Not only were they not allowed to vote, but they could not be seen in public without covering their body with the cloak and their face with the veil. They were raised in the oikos, the household of their family, and then when they came of age, usually at 14, they were transformed to the oikos of their husband, usually for an adequate dowry. Once inside, they would oversee the duties of the household, including bearing and raising children. If they were wealthy enough and had slaves, then she and her daughters, if they had any, would be at the loom, weaving away. Democracy was finally here, but not for everyone. So what to make of the quotations that I just recited to you? Those apothemes delivered by those queens of Moxie and pun fully intended, laconic wit, the women of Sparta, the docile existence I have described does not gel with these formidable women. The women of Sparta were the exception, not the norm. Plutarch, our transcriber of these plucky and admittedly callous and terrifying quotations, lived and worked in the 2nd century AD. He was a Greek from Chironia in Boeotia. For those of you in the know, Chironia has great significance in the history of ancient Greece. But he was also a Roman citizen. His most famous work was his collection of biographies of famous Greeks and Romans called Parallel Lives. He was not a historian, but a moralist who wrote about the virtues and vices of these great figures and presented them as something akin to parables. His star rose when he was long dead in the 15th century, when the work of himself and other classical writers and philosophy were adopted into the zeitgeist of humanism. But let's head back in time 2,000 years where we left off a moment ago before that digression. Putting Sparta aside, you could say there is a strong undercurrent of misogyny in Hellenic culture. Just recall some of the Greek myths of which you are familiar with, and there is a strong probability you will come up with a story that will ultimately suggest the theme of men good, women evil. Look at the story of Pandora and her box, this foolish woman who unleashed all the evils of the world upon mankind, but of course, the one thing she left in the box was hope. With this mindset permeating the Hellenic world, we can ask the question, why did the women of Sparta experience a feminine existence unlike anything else at the time? Well, if we use the Socratic method, even though he is yet to be born, we are presented with the greater question, how did Sparta, despite existing alongside other Hellenic city-states, develop into a culture distinct from everywhere else in the ancient world, the Greek world in particular? This I will answer for you by returning to Plutarch and his parallel lives and what it tells you about the founder of the Spartan ethos. Among dozens of other pairings, two figures compared in parallel lives 
are the Spartan Lycurgus and the Roman Numa Pompilius. Pompilius was one of the legendary founding kings of Rome, known for being a great lawgiver. Lycurgus, of the Spartans, was also known for being a lawgiver, although he was never king. It seems then the notion of lawgiving provides some connective tissue. Like Numa, Lycurgus, or Wolfworker, as his name translates, was legendary as well. And by legendary, I mean he probably didn't exist. As for Plutarch's sayings of Spartan women, as compelling as his sayings are, a few historical figures are referenced, the first being Gorgo, who, as we discussed, was the daughter of King Cleomenes I, and later the wife and queen to his successor, Leonidas, a name you already know. The other Spartan woman of note, referred to by name as Argilionis. She is the mother we heard being told that her recently deceased son was a great Spartan. Later in this series, you will meet Argilionis' son, and will understand why the messengers would exalt her son over the others. Unrelated to Argilionis, I admit to experiencing a chill down my spine after experiencing the story of the Spartan mother who killed her cowardly son, or did away with, as the translation says. And then without an iota of maternal guilt or love curses him even when his shade has gone to the underworld. Or the woman, after hearing one of their sons has died for Sparta, gladly sends her other son to take his place in the line. Absolutely bone-chilling, this loyalty to an ideal. I come back to Magda Goebbels, the wife of the Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who administered poison to their five children in medicinal form before joining her husband in suicide, all because the Russians were coming and National Socialism was at its end. So here we have a spectrum. On one side we have Arglionis, a mother of the nation, and a mother to a great warrior of the nation, all the way to outright fanaticism with the lady who would not only kill her son for cowardice, but continued to damn him even in death. To counter this, I will say that while Spartan women dominate the ancient world narrative for female autonomy amidst intense ancient world chauvinism, they were not the only brief flickers of light in the shadows of these times. When we get to the Peloponnesian War, that is, if the women of Sparta don't end it themselves, even though Aristophanes might have some ideas about that, you will meet Aspasia, who shared a similar but ultimately different form of autonomy in her day. I also want to tear at the seams of this oft-accepted tapestry regarding the Spartan women, which I will dutifully but not gleefully execute in this episode. So do not celebrate the Spartans for such modern thinking in terms of gender roles just yet. You may be staring too wistfully into a mirage. So what we have gathered so far is that there were two Spartas. One is the late Bronze Age kingdom that existed prior to the collapse of the Mycenaean era. The other is the second Sparta, the one that rose from the ashes of the old. Of old Sparta, we can conjure Homeric images of its famous king Menelaus, brother to Agamemnon and his queen Helen, later of Troy. And you know how that story ends. Before the end of the Mycenaean kingdoms, by whatever catastrophe you can imagine, there were three distinct Hellenic peoples, the Ionians, that is Athens and some of the Aegean islands, the Achaeans, original inhabitants of the Peloponnese, such as the Mycenae, Tyrians, Argos, and Pylos kingdoms, and the Aeolians, who for our purpose, let's just say everyone else, entered the Dorians. It's murky, there's a reason why they were called the Dark Ages, but they may have originated from Thessaly in the northeast or from the area known as Epirus in the northwest. Regardless, they were hot-blooded people who believed that they were descended from Heracles and were in need of new lands and resources. So look out. Moving south, they sacked and pillaged their way. Miraculously, the Dorians bypassed Attica or unable to access that region thanks to the mountains of the Megarid. It wasn't just the mountains, however. Athens also had the Aegean Sea to the east as a natural defense. So its Ionian culture was preserved. So the Dorians made their way along the coast of the Isthmus, and as I've mentioned, some decided to end their migration there. And Corinth was founded. 
Having reached the Peloponnese, the remainder moved east, west, and south all the way to the sea and settled. By settled, I mean absorbed by conquest the native Achaeans and other scattered Hellenic peoples. If you look at the map of the Peloponnese, you will see how its most southern contingent consists of three prongs stretching out into the Mediterranean from west to east. The most eastern prong reaches from the Argolid in the north and becomes the Parnan mountain range, where in its shadow you will have the city-states of Hisiae and Mantinea, with Argos on the northeastern plain. The Parnan range carries all the way to the end of this eastern prong. To the west of the Parnan mountains, you have the region of Arcadia in the north, and to the south where flows three tributaries which eventually expand into the Eurotus River Valley. On the opposite edge of this fertile alluvial plain is another mountain range, the Tagetes Mountains. Reaching nearly 8,000 feet in height, the Tagetes walls in Laconia, allowing it to descend south into the middle prong of the Peloponnesus. Beyond the Tagetes range in the west are further plains that yield at the shore of the Adriatic Sea, and moving south to the end of the third eastern prong of the sub-peninsula. Here one group of the Dorians settled. Eventually these Dorians came to call themselves Mycenaeans. This is a thing I want you to place at the back of your mind going forward. For the same reasons I bring up the Chilonian pollution, the Elchaminidae, even Corinth, Thebes, Plataea, and the Persian Empire. In this episode and the next, uh, just keep note of those but add the Mycenaeans to that growing list of plot points, because it is the Mycenaeans who will ensure Sparta's place in Greek civilization and inevitably seal its fate centuries later. Now returning to the Peloponnesian sub-peninsula, between the eastern slopes of the Tagetes Range and the western slope of the Parnan Range lies the Eurotus River Valley. With its source in Arcadia, the Eurotus flows south and empties into the Laconian Gulf, nourishing the plains of Laconia and the surrounding foothills. The hills and mountains provide abundant wildlife for hunting, and the Dorians as well as the native Achaean sheep herders had no end of a supply of sheep to eat and wool to trade. Some of these shepherds were also farmers who harvested a fair amount of grain each year despite the craggy ridges and hills with thin soil. Miraculously, the olive and grape tree thrived for cultivation. With all this, the contingent of Dorians who emerged from the wooded highlands of Arcadia must have thought they found their paradise. Being a warlike people, they naturally took control of the native Achaeans, called Laconians. The Laconians were the original peasantry of old Sparta, the descendants of the people who once knelt before Menelaus, Agamemnon, Nestor, and the Achaean kings of old. These natives were put to work and eventually achieved a sort of second-class citizenship to the Spartans. They were the perioikoi, or dwellers around, those who would become the artisanal class of the Spartan master race, responsible for the clay pottery that pre-Lycurgus was Sparta's chief export. These Laconian Achaeans also produced bronze figurines of athletic, dancing Spartan women and, of course, Spartan hoplites. The red clay pottery, long before it flourished under its Athenian variation, depicted scenes of hunting and war, but especially hunting as this was an important aspect of masculine society in Sparta. As I said, Sparta didn't build much, but these figurines shine a light on many facets of their culture. Now, the Periokoi in the far future would become the auxiliary forces to the Peloponnesian army, and would forge the spears, swords, and armor worn by the Spartan hoplite. But before all this was established, four villages, not including the central region of Old Sparta itself, sprung up along the banks of the Eurotus. By 1000 BC, Amicle, a village built around an ancient shrine of Apollo, was amalgamated with the other four villages, forming the polis of Lacedaemon. Therefore, by the end of the Dark Age, the Old Kingdom of Sparta has now been settled by Dorian invaders. Another group of Dorians called Mycenaeans settled in the southwest. The remaining Achaeans and the remainder of the sub-peninsula were naturally protected by Dorian annexation. Like that of Athens in the north, they had mountains. And if there was one thing the Peloponnese had in abundance, it was mountains. So in these isolated pockets of the Greek sub-peninsula, the poleis of the Peloponnese came to function. One can also say this of the Greek world entirely. 
Now let's put Sparta or Lacedaemon in its little isolated idyllic valley and look at Greece as a whole. While the Dark Age migrations did lead to the establishment of early proto-colonies in the eastern Aegean, Ephesus, Miletus, and Helicarnassus on the Asian coast, in the period of colonization, Corinth founded colonies in Cochira, that's modern-day Corfu, as well as Syracuse in Sicily. Sicyon on the northern Peloponnese went to southern Italy, founding Sybaris. And returning to the central Peloponnese, as we must, even Sparta had a colony, Terras, in southern Italy, now modern-day Taranto. It was the only colony they founded at that time until they established one on the island of Milos much later. It is important to note that these colonies were not the colonies that we think of in terms of the British Empire or any of the imperialist nations of the 18th and 19th centuries. Their founding city was the metropolis, the mother city, and was respected, but the new colony was autonomous from the mother city. By the 6th century, when sciences and mathematics were brandished by the pre-Socratics and the Sophists, we have people like Thales and Protagoras traveling to these colonies and using their skills to divide up the land amongst the colonists. As such, Sparta did not have a lasting connection to its own colony. Maybe it was because they were isolated in the river valleys surrounded by plains and that prior to the time of Lycurgus, the rival city-states of the Peloponnese, those in Arcadia, those in Elis, Achaea, and especially Corinth and Argos, the Lacedaemonians did not have yet the resources to become equal to them, nor the resources to fund further enterprises. But the strongest argument was that the colony was created by necessity. The Lacedaemonians, due to their location in an isolated valley, surrounded by mountains, were not a seafaring people. They did have a port, Githium, at the mouth of the Eurotus, but did very little trade, even with their fastidious Laconian periotkoi artisans. So where then could they find access to resources without establishing colonies outside of Greece? The answer was just on the opposite side of the Tagidas Mountains. In 735 BC, the Lacedaemonian army, then most likely a primitive version of the hop-like phalanx, which some conscripted periotkoi in their ranks, marched into the Tagidas range and fortuitously navigated the mountain passes that would take them into the arable coastal lowlands of Messenia. The Messenians were then enslaved and then for generations to come would serve as serfs of the Spartan state. Let's think about that. Only decades before what is known as the First Messenian War, more like invasion, the Olympic Games were founded in 776 BC. Doubtless to say that Messini, the chief polis of the Messenians, participated in those games probably alongside the Lacedaemonians, the Athenians, and other Peleus in the spirit of friendly competition and Hellenic unity. And now the Messenians were the captives of Sparta, the Helots. With the Helots toiling the lands of Messenia and Laconia for resources, the Spartans could focus on securing their domain from within, and did not have to depend on the other Poleus and the rest of the Mediterranean for trade, nor would they have to establish further colonies because this action of invading Messenia and forcing the conquered Messenians to contribute their produce to Sparta would guarantee Spartan independence from the outside world, which would in turn create the most isolated and conservative polis in all of Hellas, and that would ensure this polis, like any other, would develop into something exceptional, something terrifying. That is until the Helots naturally revolted against their masters. Though they were supported by other Peloponnesian Poleus, who have yet to come and fear those Dorian upstarts from the Eurotus Valley, the Messenian rebels were cornered at the base of Mount Ithome. For the Messenians, it was the end of hope. It was a victory for Sparta, but for a price, a bill that would centuries later come due. Remember, Pandora left hope in the box, and that box would be reopened by the Messenians centuries later at a place called Leuctra. But that's another story. And herein lies the main issue that faced the Spartans despite their success in this enterprise. Unless the Helots were completely neutralized and docile, they could undo the very existence of Sparta. 
One cannot help but think of the Confederacy of the American South during the Civil War and how they were dependent on the slave economy. This vulnerability aside, the lands owned by Sparta and Argos also bordered that of Arcadia. For this alone, Argos was the rival of Sparta. Since Sparta and its conquest of Messenia, in addition to the entire Rotus Valley, it had netted 3,500 square miles of territory unto itself. It was now the most powerful state in Greece. But given its dynamic with the Helots of Messenia, even the former first Helots of Laconia, the Periochoi artisan class, were grumbling. And then as well, despite the second class citizenship that they were bestowed on the interest of commerce and industry, this position was tenuous at best. King of Argos saw this weakness up front when Sparta, seeking further territory, clashed with the Argives at the Battle of Hisiae in 669 BC. Sparta's northeastern expansion of the Laconian territory was defeated. This was an agreed situation for the Spartans, as they just concluded the Second Messenian War only a year before. The Spartans lost their borderland territories and were buckling under the pressure of another Helot revolt. They had come this far, but it was not for fear of losing their position at the top of the Hellenic food chain. It was fear of losing everything they had built so far. And so comes Lycurgus. There has been a growing resistance amongst classical historians that Lycurgus, or more so the laws that he read out, that defined Spartan society for centuries to come, appeared or occurred at the end of the Dark Age in the 9th century. Thankfully, historians have come to the consensus that Lycurgus and his great Retra, as it was called, was probably laid down in the late 8th to early 7th century BC. So roughly by 650 BC, which interestingly enough is the date given when the majority of the Poleus had adapted hoplite warfare. Nonetheless, the laws that were established by commission of Lycurgus would ensure that the two factors that were an obstacle to the survival of the Spartan state, one, the possibility of another Helot uprising, and two, the defense of the Spartan state from Hellenic rivals could be prevented. So let us suppose that the semi-mythical Lycurgus appeared around this time. It was said that Lycurgus was studying the descendants of the Minoans in Crete as examples of what comprised eunomia, good order, as we have discussed. Plutarch describes Lycurgus with a wry sense of humor. He may or may not have had his eye gouged out in a brawl in his youth. In his book, The Spartans, The World of the Warrior Heroes of Ancient Greece, Paul Cartledge refers to the fact that the name Lycurgus, Wolfworker, could be attributed to the god Apollo, of whom the Dorian Spartans worshipped at Amyclae, despite ironically holding Athena, the warrior goddess, as their patroness, even building a temple on what would be called their Acropolis in Sparta town. Amusingly, it was known as the Temple of Athena of the Brazen House. I think we can all agree that the Spartan king Cleomenes would agree with that assessment of Athens, post being ousted by the mob. The god Apollo was a figure in their religious festivals, especially that of the Carnea, where during this duration Apollo was worshipped in the form of a ram, what one would call a portmanteau of Dorian, Ionian, Greek, and possibly local deities. Cartledge goes on to say that the wolfish term was a popular poetic epithet used to describe Apollo. So could Lycurgus be the god Apollo in human form, and that a clutch of Spartan magistrates conceived the Great Retra because they were afraid of Helot rebellion? Possibly. But the Great Retra, or at least its byproduct, the Spartan constitution that Xenophon would write about in the years after the Peloponnesian War, had to come from somewhere, and Apollo is that connection. Because before Lycurgus came to Sparta and handed them down what would be the basis of their constitution, he went to see the oracle, the wonderful oracle of Delphi, who as the Pythia was a priestess of Apollo. And when he asked the oracle for direction in the matter of the Lacedaemonians, she is said to have responded with the great Retra. Now, a Retra <laughs> is any kind of saying or pronouncement from a bargain or a contract through an oracle to a law. Essentially, the oracle spoke through the voice of Apollo and Lycurgus recorded what was said. And as a sort of Spartan Moses journeyed to Sparta and handed down these laws in the early 7th century. 
The Great Retra and the Constitution from which it derived ensure that all Spartan males under the age of 60, that is Spartiates, not Periokoi or Helots, must serve in Sparta's military. These were the Spartiates, the citizens of Sparta, or the Homioi, the equals. So we have the key classes to Spartan social stratification, the Homioi at the top tier, the Periokoi, and the Helots. This setup allowed the military to function 24-7. But simply training and striving for Arite and Aristea does not a perfect warrior make. The Ritra ensured the establishment of a method of military education called the upbringing, or the agogi. It dictated that the state acted in local parentis over every Spartan boy, from the age of seven and onwards. Having reached this age, a boy would be taken from his mother and forced into the agogi, a brutal, demoralizing, and ultimately transformative training experience designed to produce the perfect warrior. Spartan girls would continue on with their youth, but would also enter a long period of a daily regimen of exercise and education in Spartan mores and ethos to instill them in the virtues of becoming further mothers of the nation. And so, as you can see, those real-life Amazons that we heard at the beginning of the episode were given great privilege and reverence by this constitution, but their purpose in Spartan society was no different than the rest of their Hellenic sisterhood. In the Agogi, the boys would be assigned to an older youth called a boy herd, and these boy herds would pit the other boys against each other. Boys would be beaten severely, even mortally, by the boy herds or their peers. Their heads were shaved, and they were given nothing but a raggedy cloak to wear. They were not provided with food and shelter. They were ordered by their boy herds to hunt and steal their food if necessary. And if they were caught, more physical punishment would have to be endured, not because of the act of thieving, but because that they were caught. One of the earliest temples found in the territory of Laconia was the Temple of Artemis Orthia. Here, boyhoods would place various blocks of cheese across the goddess's altar, and Spartan boys were told to steal as many blocks of cheese as possible. The only obstacle were the boyhoods, who stood by holding whips that they would lash at the boys repeatedly with, as they contested to see who could pilfer the most cheese from the altars. The whippings persisted non-stop through the exercise, and oftentimes, the, the most persistent youths were lashed to death. If this was not enough, at the age of 12, a Spartan youth would be assigned to a young adult Spartan hoplite. The boy would be the hearer, and the man would be the inspirer, a sort of mentor pedagogical figure with deep romantic, at least in the confines of this bygone age, undertones. While this form of pederasty was practically institutionalized in ancient Greece, we must not judge from a 21st century lens, especially a culture absent of our Judeo-Christian values, but nor can we condone it either. Xenophon, who spent most of his life with the Spartans, is quick to defend this practice, that it creates a loving mentorship between student and teacher, and in most cases this relationship, as disturbing as it might be, did not have a physical component. Historians like Donald Kagan disagree and assert that there was a physical aspect as well, whereas others say ancient Greece, like any society, had its share of accepted and taboo relationships, and these sorts of relationships did exist, but there was no indication that everyone practiced it entirely in this fashion. That's all that I will say on this subject, as it is a controversial topic, and I feel that it is important to address, to drive the point home that despite some similarities, these people lived in a different time than ours, and their mores were different than our own. But keep in mind that they were striving for excellence, for Aristea, as I said, and they still had a lot farther to go. Even today, we still have a lot farther to go. Be that as it may, this relationship ended once the youth had completed his adolescence. In most cases, the same young man would choose a, a youth of his own to mentor in this fashion. The Spartans believed that this created a bond between the soldiers, so that once in the phalanx together, they would sacrifice themselves for their fellow hoplites and Sparta. Now, once a Spartan male came of age at 20, the great Retra dictated that he must become a member of the mess or Susitian, a Spartan version of the symposium or drinking party of Athens and other poleis. The main difference is that drinking and partying was not the objective here. 
If you are able to get into a mess hall, which you had to campaign for in order to be accepted, you must chip it to pay for the food served at these halls. The election for entry into these mess halls had to be unanimous. One vote against you and you would not join the mess, and despite all that you've been through from age 7 to 20, you would be an outcast. You could not participate as a homeoi. But if you did get in, a homeoi you would be. From there, you would look forward to dying gloriously in battle, or in your bed as an old man, not as glorious. In most cases, a meal called black broth was served, a soup of sorts made from pork cooked in blood with some vinegar and salt added in to, to increase the bitterness. It was full of protein. One visitor to Sparta said that he understood why the Spartans were glad to die in battle now that, that he had tried the black broth. Black broth aside, even a Spartan male had to participate in these messes, therefore they did not eat with their families. These meals were served after sundown and his attendants could not bear a torch to light their way. This ensured the Spartan warrior was always fleet of foot, even in pitch darkness. Spartan men lived in the barracks with their fellow messmates until the age of 30. Even if they were married, they remained in the barracks until they reached that age. Again, this is emphasizing the ideal closeness that the Spartan state wanted between a Spartiate and his comrade. Women, on the other hand, from girlhood to adulthood, would be receiving their education in terms of how to run the household. They sang and danced in religious ceremonies. One poet commented that the Spartans sang so often that he compared them to cicadas. I want to remind you of the pottery and figurines produced by the Periokoi, the lyric poetry composed by Spartan poets like Elkman, who wrote beautiful Parthenoi, the songs for virgins which were sung by unmarried Spartan women in choruses, probably the cicadas that the poet was talking about. Last but not least, along with the women, Spartan males would dance on many occasions, at war, at religious ceremonies. Somewhere in this society designed to produce automatons, humanity was still holding on, though the lyric poetry that flourished in the 7th century to early 6th century would soon dry up, giving evidence that the reforms of Lycurgus may have been more repressive than we think. Now I mentioned how married men had to live in the barracks until the age of 30. They were forbidden to visit their wives, even their newly wedded brides, on their wedding night under this fashion. They had to sneak out of the barracks, and the bride-slash-wives would be dressed in a male tunic, sometimes with military accoutrement, and at the end of night would be abducted by their husbands and brought to another location where they would have intercourse. This was supposed to create longing between couples to break through the obligation of duty that comes with an arranged marriage and any marriage for that matter. As we know in the rest of Greece, women married at the age of 14, but in Sparta the marriageable age for women was 18. Now, not all women of Sparta dressed up as men in these marriage-by-capture scenarios, but such a gesture could help with transitioning a man from the world of masculine camaraderie and sensuality to that of a heterosexual construct. Husbands who produce children from these encounters may not have even seen their children until the age of 30. As for the women, unlike other Greek women who were controlled by their fathers and brothers, Spartan women could inherit their own land. Visitors to Sparta, already put off by the simple huts they lived in, with very few edifices of note, would be shocked to see women roaming the villages going about the marketplace with their helot slaves or sometimes alone, exercising in the nude and ready to deliver vicious verbal barbs when appropriate. The men would either be off on campaign or in the barracks or in the field taking part in military drills. There is a distinct sense of order to all this that you can see, but you can't deny there is also a paranoia looming over everything in Sparta. A single spark could light a fire that could end it all. The great retra and the laws that came from it ensured this from happening, so long as they were obeyed, of course. Same-sex relationships also occurred among the women and were accepted so long as by the time they were married, the women would focus on their duty to the state by giving birth to Spartans, hopefully Spartan males. As for the men, I've mentioned the same-sex relationships were encouraged amongst their comrades as it solidified the bond between soldiers further. But they were reminded that they must marry and fulfill the duties of the husband to procreate little Spartan hoplites for the fatherland. More on that 
If any Spartan males were unmarried after the age of 30, they would be mocked publicly for, by the women folk. And when their husbands, slash sons, slash brothers, slash fathers returned from war dead on their shields, the best-bred of Spartan women would not even shed a tear of sorrow. They would not, like other Greek widows since the days of Homer, ululate in anguish wearing sackcloth and ashes in their mourning. Instead, they would bask in triumph that their loved ones died for the fatherland. Yes, from Aristotle to Rousseau to Adolf Hitler, the Spartans were admired by philosopher and tyrants alike. And the zealousness of forcing all Spartiates to die for their polis and the need to equalize all pure Spartans is evocative of the former Soviet Union. Moreover, we can anticipate, for example, the Nazi Lebensraum stock farms in which Aryan boys and girls chosen from the Hitler youth were coupled to breed Aryan warriors for the fatherland. To wit, in many cases, a Spartan could have children from more than one mother. If a Spartan wife was unable to have children, then it was commonly agreed upon for another woman to bear her husband's children. This was done in concert with both families, as the aim of this was to create little male Spartans to groom into perfect warriors. In essence, Sparta practiced a form of eugenics and male infanticide. A Spartan boy was examined by one of five magistrates called Ephors. If there were any deformities, especially ones that would deprive the boy the honor of serving as a soldier in his lifetime, the child was abandoned. Supposedly in a ravine on the foot of Mount Tagetus, but this has never been proven. The boys that were not abandoned could then enjoy what consisted of a normal childhood for this time until the age of seven, when they were taken into the Agogi. During this time, those proud patriotic mothers we encountered in the sayings of Spartan women doted on their little boys. The boys would socialize with the girls, sharing an exercise in festivals. This may be to create bonds between boys and girls that could be revisited in adult life. This selective breeding program with his male infanticide and women folk constantly training to stay physically fit ensured the production of healthy Spartan warriors. Now let's take a look at how Lycurgus set up the government, bearing in mind that some of these positions may have been established prior to his influence. I mentioned that there are two kings, each claiming descent from a son of Heracles, and these two kings ensured that one would check the other. Like other city-states, Sparta had its own assembly of the people, but this assembly was composed of Spartiates, that is, Spartan citizens, and most of them were of pure Spartan nobility, the homioi. Above the assembly, there was a council called the Jerusia. It was composed of 28 Spartan males above the age of 60. Of that council, we must include, regardless of their age, the two kings, this making a council of 30 in total, and they prepared the business for the assembly. It also acted as a supreme court. If a motion was agreed to by the Jerusia, then it would be brought to the assembly and would be voted or not voted into law. These assemblies were held in the open air and usually a decision was made by which motion received the most applause and yelling in its favor. To keep the kings and the Jerusia in check, five magistrates called ephors were elected annually. The ephors, or overseers, due to their political connections, would normally be the ones to bring business to the Jerusia. If one or both of the Spartan kings went to war, two of the ephors were mandated to accompany the king, and if they observed any form of ill behavior on the king's part, it was the obligation of the ephors to begin proceedings to prosecute the king in the Jerusia. By the 5th century BC, the ephors had grown powerful, some even corrupt. Endius and ephor, who served during the first part of the Peloponnesian War, drew incredible influence at the time. Say nothing of another Spartan ephor we have yet to meet. Now, in addition to ensuring the function of the agogi, the ephors also controlled the cryptea, and here the parallels to Nazi Germany and other totalitarian states continue. One of the ephors would choose a crack team of Spartan adolescents nearly complete in their training to form the cryptea, a discrete agency of the Spartan government that was responsible for keeping an eye on the helots for any sign of sedition, as well as the random and not-so-random judicial murder of helots. These judicial murders, assassinations, were carried out by the young men of the cryptea, almost as an extension of the agogi in which they learned to kill human targets by stealth. 
With this existing, Helots would soon get word and remain obedient to the Spartans so long as this reign of terror loomed over them, where at any moment they could find their throat cut as they had no rights. Whilst the Cryptea and his activities feel like it could be the worst possible fate for the Helotry, Helots, who were mere servants and farmers to the Homeoi, were invited into the Susitia of their masters. They were given food and served wine neat, but this was not kindness or pity. This was so mature Spartan warriors could point out the youngest members of the mess what complete fools the Helots were. They would let them get stupefyingly drunk so that the contrast between their animalistic behavior and the austerity of the Spartans would stand out. Now, just something I want to point out here. In the ancient world, in Greece and Rome in particular, everyone drank their wine watered down. Serving wine neat was the sign of, of, of being a barbarian because it was the Scythians that apparently introduced the ancient world to this custom. They even had the Helots distinguish themselves by wearing fur caps and dresses, essentially barbarian trappings. This was to remind Spartan youths to erase any sentiments for the Helots as they were beneath them. A few dead Helots killed indiscriminately by Spartiates in training ensured that Helots would keep any rebellious thoughts to themselves. It is understandable why the Spartans would find a democracy, such as Athens, with all its revolutionary zeal, incredibly dangerous to their society, as such pretensions could find its way into the more passionate-hearted of the Helotry. In the field or on ceremony, Spartiates wore the traditional hoplite panoply and attire I talked about in the first episode and the beginning of this episode. The bronze Corinthian helmet, usually with a vertical or horizontal crest, only their eyes and mouth vulnerable in the helmet. Spartan hoplites, unlike other Hellenic soldiers and men, let their hair grow long and were allowed to grow a beard so long as they shaved their mustache. There is a famous moment in Herodotus' histories where the Spartans at Thermopylae, as described to King Xerxes, stood along the Phocian wall, greasing their bodies with olive oil and combing their long locks of hair so that they may look magnificent in battle. Beautiful death indeed. Traditionally, Spartan hoplites wore a woolen, leather, or bronze cuirass with a bronze arm and leg greaves. They carried a small, short, curved sword called a xephos and a spear of bronze composite on a cornel wood shaft that was six to eight feet long. They carried on the left arm a circular shield called a hoplon. These shields were large and heavy enough to require two leather thongs to keep it held high and to justify when a Spartan woman tells her husband's son to come back with your shield or on the shield as it could definitely support the weight of a body. This shield had a wooden frame with a hard leather surface and bronze plating usually on top. These shields were usually emblazoned with fearsome imagery such as serpents, chimera, and gorgons, Medusa as a device to instill fear in the enemy. When the enemy saw the Spartan phalanx march towards them, they would see the fearsome helmets with high crests, spears aimed ahead in unison. However, none of this would capture the darkest part of their imagination than the blood-red cloak the Spartans draped over themselves, the calling card of a Lacedaemonian warrior. The Spartans would march in the traditional phalanx that most of Greece had adopted by 650 BC. Like their fellow hoplites from other Poleus, a piper would march alongside them using an oboe-like instrument called a diolis, which resembles two pipes joined together at a 45-degree angle. Its sound was reminiscent of an oboe and was used to keep time for the phalanx. Now that we have a taste of the Spartan mindset, as severe and uncompromising as it can be, let us immerse ourselves in striving for excellence on the battlefield, what the Greeks call aristeia. They went further and placed it in an entirely masculine field by terming it andrea, or military prowess or virility on the battlefield. Arete, aristeia, and andrea, all were lived and breathed by the Spartans' hoplites when their phalanx met their enemy in battle. Tertius, who served as a hoplite in the Second Messenian War, prior to the oft-accepted Lycurgian reforms, was a lyric poet similar to local Spartan scribes Elkman and Terpinder. His iambic hexameter gives us a sense of verisimilitude of actually being there amidst the scrum of shields, spears, dirt, and blood. Here is a man who proves himself to be valiant in war. With a sudden rush, he turns to fight the rugged battalions of the enemy and sustains the beating waves of assault. 
and he who so falls among the champions and loses his sweet life, so blessing with honor his city, his father, and all his people, with wounds in his chest where the spear that he was facing has transfixed the massive guard of his shield and gone through his breastplate as well. Why such a man is lamented alike by the young and the elders, and all his city goes into mourning and grieves for his loss. And if you wonder whether the Spartans had any doubts about enslaving the Dorian Messenians, Tertius served in the Second Messenian Revolt, and here are his thoughts about the Helots. Burden like asses, bringing to their whip masters under harsh compulsion one half of the fruits of the land. The cowardly Spartans who retreated from battle or refused to fight who were not killed by their own mothers with a piece of tile like that of what Plutarch had jotted down an eon ago, these were called tremblers, and they could not wear the scarlet cloak of a Spartan soldier, and were forced to instead wear a cloak sewed together from other cloaks to demarcate their valor as a citizen. In most cases, if you went to Sparta, these would be the beggars you would see in the street, or they would conveniently have off themselves to end the shame of their existence. Contrary to the above, if we consider the popular legacy that now exists, it's so easy to grow passionate and speak about the valor and bravery of Sparta and what they contributed to the scope of classical Greece. While we can look fondly on the works of Athenians to this day, whether at its ruins or its contributions to art, science, logic, philosophy, and democracy, but we remember the Spartans mostly for standing at the pass of Thermopylae and sacrificing their king and their best warriors against the hordes of a foreign invader, willingly dying for that freedom and all that is great about Western civilization. Suddenly, we find ourselves standing in the desert of history and are perhaps looking too eagerly at what historians call the Spartan mirage. Digging deeper, we see beyond the glossy surface and the revelations that they essentially practiced a form of eugenics, enslaved their fellow Greeks, and were threatened by the very notion of democracy. Thomas More wrote of them in his Utopia, but Hitler admired them as well. Underneath the pretensions of honor and duty, there is, there is a sinister underbelly to Sparta. Yes, women had rights and freedoms in Sparta that were unheard of at its time, but it was a surface autonomy at the best. Sparta had great pride over their women and so much that it was part of their political optics to boast of their strength and their beauty. But this was both to outsiders and to Spartiates a form of propaganda, because essentially by holding up their women on a pedestal, they were telling all and sundry that Spartan women gave birth to Spartan hoplites. Then we have David's masterpiece, Leonidas at Thermopylae, depicting the standoff between Sparta and the Persians, portrayed as a rapturous homoerotic orgy where a nearly nude Leonidas stands resplendent glorifying in the victory. Consider the film 300, where Leonidas looks to his queen Gorgo for assent to execute the Persian envoy, or when Michael Fassbender's character eloquently with charisma and presence delivers the fight in the shade retort from Herodotus, and of course all other portrayals of Sparta in popular culture. This is the Spartan mirage. But please don't mistake me for attempting to make them the villain in this 27-year-long war, because the Athenians were far from virtuous. Even Pericles, that paragon of Athenian statesmanship himself, at one point tells the people to own up to the fact that, yep, we are pretty much a ruthless empire now, but isn't the Acropolis just lovely? The Parthenon looks great, doesn't it? Good job, Phidias. The fact that this was a pre-Christian society with none of our modern values, both city-states would betray everything they held dear in the name of ambition and greed. Hypocrisy is bliss, and if you know how this story ends, or are willing to allow me to deliver that catharsis in a dozen episodes from now, both sides, whether winner or loser, will be changed forever by the experience. In the next episode, we will be discussing the first great challenge of democratic Athens, the Persian invasion, which also marks the beginning of the Classical Age in 490 BC. While the Persian Wars has a cornucopia of drama and famous events for a separate podcast of its own, I was reluctant to explore it, but have since changed my mind as Greek victory was assured due to the incredible display of Pan-Hellenism 
it only compounds the tragedy to come, where the Greek world will enter a moment of stability, Athens will enter its golden age, and everything will fall apart. We will also encounter the first appearances of our Peloponnesian War Dramatis Personae, Pericles, Aspasia, Alcibiades, Cleon, Nicias, King Archidamus, with cameos from Aristagoras of Miletus, King Leonidas, Themistocles, Xerxes, Cimon, Phidias, to name just a few. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. I see more followers on Instagram, and I will be returning to my usual consistency. If you have anything you want to say or questions you might have about uh, the history and culture of Sparta, uh, please let me know on Instagram. We are now about to sail into the final years leading up to the titular war of this podcast, and there is some rough waters ahead. So as the Spartan ladies say, come back with your shield or on it, or just with this podcast downloaded on your smartphone. I will accept that at least. 